welcome everyone. We're at Life in the Peloton here and I've got my co-host today, Lionel Burney, on board, but I've got him on board for the whole podcast. He's over there in France and we're going to be discussing the Tour de France today. Welcome, Lionel, to your first official full episode of Life in the Peloton. Thanks very much, Mitch. I'm, I'm honoured to be a, a fully-fledged guest, although I'm going to be turning the tables on you because really you're going to be answering the majority of the questions that have come in from some of your listeners, some of our listeners, and also I've got some questions of my own. But I'm here on the rest day of the Tour de France. We're in a hotel in La Rochelle, and I'm looking around the room. It feels like I've unpacked absolutely everything that I brought with me for the three weeks, and I've got all my stuff on the, the surfaces. I'm, I'm not too proud to admit I'm not the tidiest of people when I'm on my own, and it just made me wonder about your rest day routine during the Grand Tours, what it's like. You know, Do you like to get the travel bit done the night before so you get a full day in the hotel on the rest day? Well, yeah, I was just getting cast in my mind back to that, just as you were asking that question. And one thing that just popped into my head, one thing I always loved to do was exactly what you said, do the travel before. And often my wife would come and visit me the night before the rest day and she would be staying close by. And that meant I would be able to catch up with her on the rest day. So you'd come down, you'd hopefully not get in too late. And that was always a day I'd put, if you if you had your team attire required any kind of dressy clothes that was because pretty much all the time all you're wearing is tracksuit pants team t-shirt tracksuit top and then cycling gear and you live in those clothes um day in day out so the night before the rest day was like my my day to sort of you know spruce it up so what i'd do is i'd i'd pack my you know presentation shirt in there team one give myself a little chance to dress up for the night, maybe have a shave and go down and have my um, uh, before rest day dinner. And, you know, it wasn't anything special. Maybe we could have a glass of wine, but you could just mentally switch off knowing I've made it. I've made it to the rest day. Um, I've got a day off tomorrow. I don't have to do the routine. And it was just a nice feeling. There's always a nice buzz around the table. If that was, you did get in in enough time because sometimes you just don't get in in time. And the worst scenario is... You have to travel on that rest day to the to the following hotel. So to go back on that, then to be able to wake up in the morning of the rest day in the hotel and just sort of have a relaxed morning, go down for breakfast, maybe read the paper a bit longer or, you know, even catch up with your wife or your girlfriend. That was actually pretty special. It seems so weird to think of it outside the bubble because it seems a bit ridiculous. You've only been away for 10 days. It sounds like I'm talking like you've been on a race for 10 years, but it does build up so much that you do need that decompression on that rest day um, because there is still a lot more to come. It's only the first rest day. And then a little ride just to kind of keep the legs moving. And in normal times, I guess a, a nice relaxed coffee with teammates. I, I think the riders here on the tour are, are not allowed to do that because that would count as going out of the, the COVID secure race bubble. So a bit of an unusual rest day for them here. But I guess that's one of the little pleasures, just getting a little bit of downtime, just not thinking about the race for 24 hours. And also, exactly. Also, one thing I did didn't mind also is that morning that breakfast I always tried to have something different to what I do on race day you know race day is all about getting the carbohydrates in preparing for the big stage ahead and what I would typically do is try and eat a little bit normal you know I might just even have some scrambled eggs and a piece of toast you know and that would be it and just feel nice not to be sort of shoveling food down your throat have a coffee like have a long coffee because generally you're you're having the quick breakfast, you're having a big breakfast and you're feeling pretty damn full before you jump on the bus and go to the stage. So 
I think the biggest thing was a change in routine, um, and I'm sure a lot of guys are enjoying that today. Going for a cruisy ride, actually, sometimes it was quite nice if you were able to sort of probably not now with COVID, but if you could break away from the team for a moment, you know, maybe do an hour or something with the boys and maybe go for another hour on your own. I actually found that really nice, really peaceful, really a moment to sort of just sit in your own thoughts and maybe stop at a coffee shop on your own and, like I said, read the paper or sit on your phone or do whatever you need to do and not be in around teammates. No offense to them, but it's just, it, it's enough time, you know, like I said, you're in the bus together, you're at the dinner table together, you're at the breakfast table. So it is nice to sort of find that moment when you can just to break out of that team mold and just refresh yourself. And, and is there a difference between the first rest day of a Grand Tour and the second? I mean, obviously, you, I, I'm assuming you feel a lot more fatigued on the second rest day and perhaps on that day, you just want to do next to nothing. That's exactly right. And actually, I'm pretty much talking about a first rest day, all those things I just said then, you know, going for a ride and having an extra coffee on your own and reading the paper and doing all this. That doesn't really happen on the second rest day, in my case anyway, because you've got all these great ideas. You're at the first rest day. You've got, I've got all this free time. I'm going to do all this, that and the other. But actually, by the time the second one comes, you're pretty happy just to stay in bed, relax, do everything really easy because you're like, okay, this is the last week coming and it's generally the hardest, biggest week. You're the most tired. So you sort of, me anyway, I'm sort of a little bit scared slash tired, everything rolled into one and just lay pretty low on that that second one but on that same note as the first rest day uh, probably the second rest day I'm more so looking forward to that day on my own sort of get back to your room have a little bit of free time um, one thing the guys probably will maybe not so much need this year because I, a lot of teams are doing single rooms if not all teams so one thing I did notice on the last races is when you're in your room on your own now you do spend a lot more time together at the dinner table. Well, our team did anyway. And you enjoy that banter at the dinner table. You enjoy, you know, we'll, we even played Celebrity Heads one night. We played cards another night. You know, we'll, we're having all fun games because you go back to your room and you're on your own. You've got that time on your own. So you, you have that outlet to be on your own. And then when you come to the dinner table, you really enjoy that time together. So I'm probably imagining maybe a slightly different dynamic to what I'm talking about in a typical Grand Tour. Because guys have got that space on their own now, back in their rooms. They've got that time to refresh. So they might be enjoying a bit more time around each other at the dinner table on those rides in the bus. It might be actually quite a good little scenario. One of the things over the years when when I've talked to people who've either just been getting into cycling or or friends who are are kind of curious about the sport but don't know the ins and outs, they can't get their head around the fact that the athletes share rooms. And I mean, in the social media age, we've seen some some cracking photos from riders, you know, where the the beds are are fixed and they're only like, uh, you know, a foot apart from one another or, you know, there's a competition to see who can have the little bit of space to open the suitcase, competition for the plug sockets and all of that. I mean, can you, I guess the reasons for the, the room sharing is to keep costs down for the organisers, um, keep the overall budgets down a little bit. Um, but it's kind of one of the traditions and quirks of the sport. But do you, do you think it will go back to, if you know we get back into more normal times, do you think it will go back to room sharing being the normal thing? I think that's exactly what you say there. I asked a question not so long ago. Maybe it was even on the last race and someone told me that it was actually tradition. You know, that's how they used to do it. That's how it was done. So that's why they've sort of kept it going. As with cycling 
many quirky little things in the world of cycling. You, you wonder why that is happening in this day and age. It's tradition. And so when I heard that, I, I liked it. Um, I'm not against room sharing at all. Um, I guess it's because I'm used to it. And there have been some funny times. I do remember back in the Giro 2014, it would have been. It's the only one I did with Michael Hepburn. And um, we were sharing a bed for a couple of nights, literally shared a double bed under the same blanket. You know, like it's, <laughs> it's just how it was. It's just, it was so ridiculous. But you, you're so over it by then, you know. You're like, it's your teammate, you know, what's going to happen there? You know, you, you, you're that close anyway the rest of the whole time. So it's like, whatever, like, you know. Just let's just get to sleep and get it done, you know. So, um, it is a funny thing, and like when I think back to the things I used to throw in my suitcase, that's you got to prepare for these situations, and you learn the hard way. You get in these small rooms, and there's a few little things that I always put in my suitcase. It might sound ridiculous, but you've got to have like an iPhone cable that's got like an extra long cable on it, you know, a meter and a half at least, because so, there's always only one power socket, and if it is there, it's always like in the corner and the most far, furthest way from your bed. You've got to have a double adapter minimum, if not a power board with three or four sockets in it, because you know there's, like I said, there's only one socket in the room. And in Italy, I love this in Italy. They've also in Italy they've got their own European socket hole, which is. It's just slightly smaller than any other Euro European hole. I just love it. It's only in every so so many hotels, and it just catches you out every so often. So now when I go to Italy, I've got my own Italian uh, adapter because I'm like, yeah, you're not going to get me this time, Italy. You know, it's um, it's funny. You pick up all these little extra things, and my suitcase is super heavy now because I'm probably go too much on the other side of all the little nicks and knacks I've got to have. But um. It's again trying to make that trip feel a little bit like home. You know, for a while there, I was traveling with a little photo frame of my wife and only had a son at the moment, a photo of my wife and my son in there. And I used to just put that up on the bedside table and I'd have a little incense burning once we came in just to um, give it that smell that I was always used to. And you can go on and on and on. But if you can get little things that create it and make it feel a little bit more like home, for me anyway, it just, it helped along the way. It helped me break the mold of the different hotels yeah i guess you want the the little bit of downtime you get to feel as as normal as possible but i mean everything feels kind of strange here i mean here we are on a tour de france rest day and i can't believe i'm keeping my eye on what's going on in Tirreno adriatico i mean this is this is the most peculiar year for cycling the most peculiar year of our lives really but uh, you've been at home uh, training i guess and and watching a bit of the tour what have you made of the opening nine days I tell you what, I tell you what it did feel like for me, and you probably, it probably didn't feel like this for you because you're in France, but it really felt like I was watching the Vuelta, and it was going up some of these climbs. It was in September, so the the light when I looked outside felt like the end of the year. You know, some of the the leaves are starting to change color, and I'm watching this race, and there was just a few people sprinkled on the climb, and it was a pretty hard climb, and I was like, this is just had such of a welter feel about it you know the climb was super steep and so that was quite a weird dynamic and also seeing the riders in different clothing you know like they're putting rain jackets on more often than not and the the tour typically was in the middle of summer as you know the guys were just in nixon jersey with the jerseys always open flapping there used to be just mountains and mountains of people on the on the side of the road so it's just been quite a different race to watch just from the aesthetics of it 
Um, from the racing side of things, I have to admit, it's actually been a brilliant race to watch. Um, and I was listening to Bradley Wiggins do his um, breakdown on Eurosport the other day, and I think he made a really good point because he was talking about how the Vuelta and the Giro typically are the races that are unpredictable. There's, you know, climbs everywhere, and the race gets sighted right on the last stage, and it's all unpredictable the whole time. And one of the things he really liked about the Tour de France previously when he was growing up was the predictability of it. You know, you used to have a week of sprint stages and then you'd go into the mountains and then the race would happen like that. Um, and I had to, to agree with him at, the point, at that point. I was thinking, that is actually what I loved about the Tour de France. You know, you used to have your week of sprint stages and I love watching the sprint stages. I probably like watching the sprint stages more than the mountains um, just because I can see the dynamic of the sprint trains. I know what that guy's doing. I've been in that position. I want to see if the lead-out train is going to work out. Geez, they've hit out early. That's way too That's way too early. Are they going to hang on? You know, whoa, where did that sprinter come from? You know, all these things. I'm loving that. So for me, I did miss that in this year's tour. But then on the flip side, it's been so exciting, you know, because it's been a bit unpredictable um, I'm not going to say I want every race like this because I know what it's like to be in a race like that. It's pretty hard. Stressful. Um, stressful when you very, when it's, very, yeah. very, yeah, very stressful, you know, like, and I'm not just talking about the guys racing for the win, but for the teams trying to keep things together. And you can see now that stress is starting to show on the outside. I'm sure that's been very evident on the inside in the teams. They've been feeling that from day one or day two when the was it i can't remember in nice when the wet wet stage was um that would have been very evident on the inside there would have been a lot of stress inside the teams but now you can see it on the outside watching you can see the screws starting to come out some of the guys i thought would have still been up there are falling away on the wayside especially some of the younger guys which i think is starting to show What's going to happen in the next couple of weeks? I feel like the older pros are going to start to show their strength, their um, their experience because in this first week, if you're a young, fit pro, you could really match it. And the, the older pros were there, but I wouldn't say out of their depth, but you know they weren't showing so much. But at the end of this first week, you can see even like a rider from our team, Rigoberto Oran, He's just started to show himself, and I'm I'm getting really excited about that because I'm I'm just sort of liking the way that the shape of the race is going, and it's sort of showing you know the older pros are coming forward now, and it seemed like the first week it was like wow anyone can win this you know Sep Sep Cus might be able to win this, and I know those guys have been doing a lot of work and these younger guys, but it's it's nice to see that the older pros are coming through and showing like hey. You do have to be around for a few years before you can win one of these things. Shoot, uh, shoot that arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour at the Tour de France, interrupting our episode of Life in the Peloton to remind me to tell you that it is sponsored by Whoop, the fitness wearable that provides personalised insights on how recovered you are and how much stress you're putting your body through during the day so that you can maximise your workouts and performance. And Whoop has recently announced that they're the official fitness wearable of Mitch, your team, EF Pro Cycling, and the riders and staff, I've, I've noticed uh, around the paddock when we've been at the starts, are wearing the Whoop 
Um, looks like a sort of slimline wristwatch from a distance, but uh, there's no there's no display on the actual device itself. You get all the data through your phone, and uh, well, it, it's it's keeping a record of um, principally heart rate, isn't it? So that it's it's adding up the stress that the body's going through during the day, and then monitoring sleep. Um, overnight so that you you get this whole range of scores that that kind of tell you you know where you're at whether your sleep has uh, adequately helped you recover from the previous day's effort and you you've been wearing the whoop mitch and you're probably a few weeks in now how have you been finding it been finding it really good it's been fantastic and like we said last time it's been a great metric to add to all the other metrics i have you know my training files my comments and now I can actually see, well, my coach can see how I'm recovering as well. There's no more just taking a stab at the dark. I think he's going to be recovered. He's had a recovery day or that wasn't too hard a session. Now there's an extra metric to take in that data. You know what? Mitch was up four times last night because the kids were up and, you know, he had to feed his daughter with a bottle. So he had a pretty crap sleep. I think maybe he should have an easier day today. Or yesterday's session was harder than we thought. His HRV is quite low Let's just give him a rest day or, you know what, that wasn't hard enough yesterday. Let's crank it up today. So it's just another great metric because I'm using it in training at the moment, which I think it works fantastically in because you've got that ability to alter your training. In a race, I think it's great, interesting data. Unfortunately, you can't take a rest day in the middle of a race. But at the end of that race, you can see how well you came out of that race and use that data to go on for future races and for future training. So at this point, a couple of weeks in, I'm really enjoying it. And I'm actually really enjoying wearing it. it you don't even notice it on your wrist. Like you said, it is like a slimline watch. Um, I thought it was going to be really noticeable, but to be honest, I haven't really noticed it at all. Well, that's the thing I've noticed. It just persuades you just to not watch Netflix for that extra half hour at night because the the extra half hour can make all the difference. Um, but if you'd like to try Whoop, they're offering 15% off for all listeners to the cycling podcast and Life in the Peloton with the code CYCLE at the checkout. So go to Whoop, that's W-H-O-O-P dot com and enter CYCLE, C-Y-C-L-E, at the checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster and train smarter. Optimise your performance with Whoop today. Well, that takes us to our first question from Charlie Marshall, who asks, based on what you've seen so far, will it be Pog or Rog? That's Pogacar or Roglic in yellow in Paris. I mean, seems to rule out all of the other overall contenders there, but I guess because they're both Slovenian um, and, and they are the, the two that have really caught the eye, I guess, in, in this first nine days of racing, Pogacar's won a stage, Roglic has won a stage, Roglic is in yellow, but does your point stand that that, the, that little bit of extra experience that Roglic has and might stand him in good stead? Exactly. You can't forget that he won the Vuelta, um, the Vuelta España. So, not only does he have you know a few more Grand Tours in his legs, but he's also won a Grand Tour. He's had to perform on the highest level at the end of three weeks. Nothing against Pogacar, but um, I think he's been able to gain that time back that he lost in the crosswinds because he had lost that time, if that makes sense. Um, maybe there's a bit of a question around now that he would have been leading the race if he hadn't lost that time in the crosswinds, but at the end of the day, he did lose that time in the crosswinds. So he was able to do things he wouldn't have been able to do if he was only out a few seconds. Yellow in Paris, um, 
I don't know. I look. I think Roglic is going to be hard to beat. He's just looking so good at the moment. You know, when you when you look back at even Dolphine, like I haven't seen someone do that since I don't know when. Since I was watching the Tour de France with you know Jan Ulrich and Lance Armstrong, just that control, just that in the seat acceleration, and just looking the calmness of the face. He just looks he's completely in control, and the whole team looks very confident. And you know, it's just been it's just been amazing to watch those guys on the front taking control. It's been exciting just to see, you know, even the big riders falling away the wayside, why the team has still got, you know, their their riders on the front. And, you know, I'm not let's speak about Walt Van Art as well. Like, for me that's been some of the most exciting racing I've watched, let alone talking about the guys winning the Tour de France. What Walt Van Art's been doing there has just been awesome to see. Like on the actual sprint days with the best sprinters beating them and then on the next day dropping in a group of 20 or maybe 30 riders he's he's dropping the best climbers from there while he's riding the front so it's just it's it's been amazing to watch that um that's a long answer to that question i think rogalich will be in yellow if you have to choose from those two because maybe someone else might be there well, Old Cold Mole asks, what's it like in the team when a big leader crashes or loses a big chunk of time early in the race? I mean, we've already seen that on the Crosswinds Day here. It happened in last year's tour when Rigoberto Uram was one of the riders on the wrong side of, of the splits in the Crosswinds. And, uh, well, it, it, it happens in every Grand Tour that a, that a, a leader um, has, a, has a bad day and something goes wrong. It, what's it like around the dinner table or on the bus after a stage like that? It can be pretty down. Um, look, I, I was in that scenario last year in the Vuelta España. We lost Rigo. Um, we lost Danny. Uh, not Danny. Um, we lost um, Hugh Carthy as well. And, you know, we had to... We lost TJ Van Garderen as well. We lost three of our big players there. So, in one day. And we pretty much had to flip it on its head straight away before we could sort of get in that downward spiral of we've lost our big guys. What are we going to do? It was just like, all right, great. Let's move on to the next thing. Who's next in line? Let's look at our opportunities. I think it's really important for the leaders in the team to make that distinction of we can quickly go down this negative spin and next thing you know, two, three days are gone and then the team's going down this, you know, let's just get to the finish and blah, blah, blah. But I think you got to quickly turn it on your head. Look at what you got and it is very difficult as a rider to suddenly, if you've come into the race as a complete support role, to suddenly be going, going all right, Mitch or whoever else it might be, you're gonna, you've, you have to win tomorrow. You are up for GC now. So it's just a, it's a mental switch, but it is quite difficult to make that switch when you've been preparing for so long as a support rider. You know what your job is. You know how to do that job very well from one day to the next to become that. But it's very important for the team's morale to try and step up. And also personally, it's a great opportunity. Um, as a leader in the team, as a, as a rider, or even as a DS, you have to recognize that very quickly and try and turn the morale of the team around. And also if that person has lost time, they're still in the race or if they've crashed and they're still in the race, also addressing that rider to try and turn their morale around, to not try and bring everyone down um, because it, they can. They can also become a bit of a poison in the team because they've lost all their hopes. They've lost whatever they've trained for 
And if they start poisoning the team with this sort of bad feel or, you know, sadness or whatever, that can also bring the rest of the riders down because they're the leaders. They have a lot of respect within the other riders. So it's important to address them too and give them a new job. And I think, you know, like a rider like Pinon, maybe now, he's maybe now going to focus on stages. So he feels comfortable about something else. He feels excited about something else. So he's going to bring a new morale for the team. Um, I think that would be a good way to go for a rider like him at this point. Interesting. Well, Roy W4 has got a, a really good question, which um, makes me think of a couple of stages in particular. The question is, are there agreements in the peloton between teams prior to the start on any given day? And I'm thinking back to the Vuelta last year, the first day after the second rest day, the stage to Guadalajara when it was just absolutely insane racing right from the start. It all split up. Uh, there was just basically just every group for themselves 200 kilometers from start to finish and the complete contrast to that this day early in this tour where the peloton seemed to have the the unofficial no breakaway day and uh you know although the pace was high there was no breakaway up the road because everyone was kind of tired and 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 perhaps a little bit fearful of the of the tough stages to come so when you're you get out of the bus and you mix with riders from other teams at the sign on or in the paddock or or wherever or you're you're waiting on the start line for the off is there do you get wind of rumors that this is going to kick off or i don't know quick step are going to start it up and we or the first climb it's going to break up how does how does that that kind of uh, that work do you get word of what's going to happen before the start look i think just to go to your point there a couple of things i've seen in the tour de france here that make me quite pleased um is the the wet stage in in nice coming into nice where there was a lot of crashes there was a neutralization there by the peloton um which i haven't felt or seen for a long time i get the feeling the last few years it's been like kill or be, get killed you know like if you can take an advantage anywhere do it and that was the sort of feeling i had and i hated it to be honest i just didn't like that feel of the peloton where you could take advantage of someone else you would there was this the old unspoken rules didn't exist anymore and i got a feeling from this tour de france from two stages now that stage and the stage you spoke about there's a bit of calmness around it's like hey guys look there's going to be enough hard racing coming Let's take care of ourselves and let's race when we need to race. Um, let's be a little bit more smart about this rather than just try and kill each other before the first week's out. To go back to what you were talking about, does this? how do we decide this or how does this happen? From a director's point of view, if you've got a plan you know, to put it in the crosswind, what I notice is the directors often say to you guys, don't go and tell your mate about this idea. You know, at 65 kilometers, we're turning left and that's where we're going to hit it out. Don't go and tell your best mate at, for me, best mate at Mitchelton about, hey, uh, Durbo, you know, we're going to put in the crosswind at 65K because then he's going to go tell his team and then they're going to tell someone else. Next thing you know, at kilometre 65, the whole team's, every other team's at the front. And so your whole plan's gone. But on the flip side, you might speak to another team who's interested in doing that because putting things in the crosswind as one team can be quite difficult. If you know another team could be interested in that, for instance, typically it's a Belgian or a Dutch team you might speak to. Back in the old days, you'd always speak to Rabobank and they were definitely up for it or Quickstep these days. If you're thinking about it, you know you want some help, we might speak to... I'm, I've spoken to Luke Rowe one time at Sky and we, we got together and said, hey, Perry Nice, you know, let's put it together, let's go two, two teams and then once it all splits up, then you race each other afterwards. 
that's sort of how you might go about it. You might sort of speak in the neutral or you might speak as the racing going and it's a quick comment. It's a quick comment as you pass by or a quick chat as you're riding by and everyone knows where it's going to happen more or less so you don't need to explain it too much more than that um, and they're either on board or they're not. You've got to be pretty careful about that because you've just given away your plan so you've got to be pretty sure that they're, you know that they're going to come on board. What I've noticed also is more so in a defense mechanism, you might try and find some information out yourself. You might, you know, if it's a difficult start and I was imagining Mitchelton in the yellow jersey, typically you want a good breakaway to go away to help yourself control the situation. So you might you might want four or five guys going away. You don't really want more than that. You don't really want less than that. You just want a good number, whatever that number is. So you might speak to another team who's quite interested to have the same scenario as you and you might say, hey, how many guys do you want to go up the road? And they might say, yeah, we're looking at four or five guys you say, and you speak to another team. So then that way you've got three or four teams trying to block each other out um, and help you create a race scenario. If you're the only team doing that and every team's against you in terms of just trying to keep the race going in the attacking period, you're in for a really hard day and actually you could, you've got to play things smart and that might mean you might put your whole team on the front and just start riding tempo from the start and just say, hey guys, look, you guys can attack as much as you want but we're going to ride from kilometre one. That's fascinating. I mean, I've seen we've seen during a couple of the breakaways in the early stage of, uh, of, of particular stages of this tour, you know, once the, the composition of the break is, is acceptable to the peloton, basically somebody, one team or two teams will get to the front and just fill the road and basically stop anyone else getting past and going up and making a six-man group suddenly eight or ten. And uh, just watching how all of that goes on, I guess there must be sort of so much unspoken cooperation going on as well because you, you, you've got shared interests with one or two other teams. Yeah, and that's like that's just called simply blocking the road. You know, you might have a scenario that you're really happy with, and a typical thing will be, you might say it before the race is like, as soon as we get to this road uh, at kilometer twenty three, the road gets really small, so we can block the road there. If you've got the jersey, we can block the road at kilometer twenty three. Everyone get to the front at kilometer twenty three, and let the brake go, and we'll block the road so no one else can get past. Um, that sometimes works and sometimes it doesn't. And look, uh, some guys can get quite um, defensive about controlling the race. Someone will sneak past on the grass or push through and, you know, and then there's a bit of a fight happening. And I'm just like, look, we're trying to block the road. I get that. But this team really needs to be in the break. If he has to push past and he does get past, so be it. You know, you can't then go on and, you know, go up and helmet bop this guy and get angry at him for trying to get in the break. That's racing. You know, it's it's part of it. And if we're smart enough and they're silly enough to not get in the front by kilometre 23 where the small road is, that's also their fault. That's also all part of it. Um, it's all grey, that area. And, you know, attacking when we're, we're having a pierce and, you know, going around on the, on the footpath or going on the grass. It's, um, it's sort of scenario by scenario, that sort of stuff. This episode of Life in the Peloton is also supported by Beer 52, who have been sponsoring the cycling podcast for a couple of years now. 
and whenever I get a case of eight craft beers delivered, there's always something to delight or surprise me, and you don't get the same drink twice in a case. What could be nicer than sitting back at the weekend to watch a stage of the Tour de France with a good beer, and with the Giro Vuelta and Classics still to come, there's time to get a case of eight beers sourced from some of the best breweries in the world delivered to your door. The beers are free, you just pay £5.95, which is the cost of delivery. All you need to do is go to beer52.com slash cycle. Each month's delivery has a theme, and in the past I've particularly enjoyed their Belgian collection. And if you join the club's 150,000 plus members, you'll get a different case each month. And if you change your mind, you can pause or cancel your account at any time. You also get a copy of the award-winning Ferment magazine, so you can learn about the brews you're enjoying. So go to beer52.com slash cycle to get your first case of eight beers for just £5.95. That's beer52.com slash cycle. Well, let's get into a few of these other questions from listeners here. A sort of few quick-fire questions, a sort of intermediate sprint of questions, if you like. Um, Here we go. What food do you miss most when you're away on a Grand Tour? That's from Jayeb84. I probably miss... You know what I really do miss? Is a cold beer and a packet of crisps. Um, it sounds funny. You could probably have that on a race if you really wanted to, but it really does get frowned upon. It's probably not necessarily the food. It's a scenario. Cold beer and a packet of chips watching a cycling race. I can't do that on a grand tour. And that is really what I miss. Nathan1985 asks, matching shorts with leaders jerseys. Is this criminal or genius? So the all yellow or the all polka dots or the all green or whatever. Um, what, what do you reckon? Genius. I reckon if I tell you what, if I ever get a jersey, I want the full shebang. You know, the the bike, the gloves, the glasses, the helmet, the socks, the shoes. Let's get it going. Especially if I get polka dot one day. That's I really want the full kit out. I think, you know, Cipollini did it best back in the day, but since those since those days, we've seen some pretty good combinations. Netic asks, what do you have displayed on your bike computer during the race? You know, what metrics are you looking at on their heart rate or power? Or even ask training stress score, whether that's something you'd look at. Or are you, you, are you looking at how much distance you've covered? What, what information is most important to you? I personally have these days, I have the route map. Um, and then down, below, down the bottom, you can have two segments with a map. If anyone has Garmin, they would know that. You can only have a map and two metrics. And the two metrics I have is distance covered and distance to destination. Um, because often you get calls in the radio, um, at kilometer 200, there is a bottle. So if you only got kilometer how much to the finish, you have to do quick maths in your head. And vice versa, you want to know, okay, it's 50K to go. I know you can probably work that stuff out, but it's just nice to have both there to make sure the GPS and the route is the same. On another note, though, I have known guys to have TSS written on their um, Garmin. Um, Whether they have that displayed or whether they have it on another screen, they flick across. And I found this quite interesting because, you know, if you understand, I'm talking about a classic, a one-day race now. If you understand that at a certain point, a certain amount of TSS, 
So kilojoules used and the power and this is all added up and it gives you a TSS score. At a certain TSS score, let's use 300 as an example. If you know at 300, that's when the race gets started. You can you can gauge when it's a really good point maybe to attack. Um, if you're that type of rider, if you're a rider that races for the win, and I know guys do this, they look at, okay, I've been feeling the race is pretty hard, but I'm not too sure, you know. They look down at their gun and they go, it's actually at TSS 300. I know everyone's going to start to get tired now, and this is when the guys go. This is the big difference. I thought that was quite clever. Um, just to get a gauge on where the race is at. You might get that TSS score at 20K to go, but you might also get it at 50K to go. So that gives you an idea of when you might need to attack. Um, And that's starting to get pretty technical now. I think the way cycling's going, you're not just looking at the faces anymore. You're not looking at the terrain. You're just looking at 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 a TSS score to make your decisions on how to win a race. But doesn't that work both ways, depending on whether you're a positive person or a, or a negative person? Because I could imagine if you think, oh, well, my my biggest ever day when I felt you know absolutely finished at the end was a certain TSS and you're getting close to that. You might be you might be uh, kind of uh, told telling yourself that, well, I haven't got that much left in the tank. I haven't got that much left to give. Whereas, you know, actually you might surprise yourself if you didn't have that bit of information to hand. I don't know whether whether that's just a bit of cod psychology from me there or whether that's uh, uh, you know having an artificial or a or a numerical uh, indication of what your limit might be in front of you i could imagine that working both ways yeah i think look to be honest i think all my classics races are around the same tss you're sort of between 420 450 um they're pretty big but to know when you're around 300 um I think you're going to know then, and these are the guys who can attack. You know, I'm talking about the guys who actually can attack. You know, when I'm at 300, probably happy to follow the wheels and see what I can do. I'm not thinking about trying to go off the front of the race. Um, I'm probably a little bit more what you're talking about, Lionel, like, oh, you know, this has been pretty solid. And so I think maybe those guys might look at when they're at, you know, 300 with, you know, 100K to go, they might think also... I know that everyone else is tired now. So regardless of what I've got, 300, just off experience, everyone else is also going to be tired too because it's been a 300 race at this point. So these guys know the feeling of the whole peloton. Physically, people can't do 500, 600 TSS. I don't even know what you can do, but that's not possible. So I think that number is... I think that number is quite relevant. If you know whatever that number might be, you know, it might not be 300, it might be, you know, 250 or it might be 350. I don't know exactly. I'm just picking that number. But um, they know the number that when everyone starts to get dropped, that's the time to attack. And when you find that number for yourself, I think that's a good gauge just to know where you are, not get lost in the race, not get lost on, well, this is a Quaramont. I've got to attack here because attack here, it's the Quaramont. Maybe that's the time to go is after the Quaramont. Maybe it's time to go before it because you're at that number. And fascinating for uh, amateur riders listening who could could gauge what their hardest rides are in comparison to what your hardest rides are. Exactly. And it it does vary. I I think this is something I found out over the years is that um, as my my threshold went up, it got harder to get higher TSSs. And anyone who knows this is probably just, this is very simple stuff. But... As your threshold goes up, the TSS score goes down. 
um, and you think you're doing these big rides in the middle of the season, you're like, yeah, I just pumped out a seven-hour ride. It's going to be a great TSS, and you get this dismal number, and you're pretty disappointed just because you're a fitter guy, you know. And I get bigger TSSs in January when I'm completely unfit um, because my thresholds are down so so low. Pedaling Squares asks, because the Tour de France is on, how important is racing the Tour to a pro? And personally, how would you feel if you never got a chance to race the Tour in your career? Look, I think um, up until the last few years, it wasn't a big importance to me. Um, the Tour de France, I think, for any pro is a big deal. Um, it's the race that we all grew up watching. I can almost speak... On behalf of everyone there, I'm almost sure every pro watched the Tour de France and wanted to do the Tour. And whether they became a Tour rider or not, it was the race we watched. And to then go on as a, as a rider and do the Tour, I think that's what we all aspire to do. But personally, as when I became a pro, I started to realize what I was good at and what I then loved. And for me, not to do Roubaix is sort of like not to do the Tour for me. That is my Tour de France. It's it's the one-day pinnacle race. Um but as years have gone on, I've started to realize that it would be a lovely thing to tick off, um, a really big challenge to do as well. You know, it's easy for me to sit back and say, yeah, look, you know, I don't want to do the tour and, you know, that's not what I really want to do. But at the end of the day, I think I would love that challenge to try and do the tour, to try and finish the tour, to see how I match up in the, the hardest, biggest race in the world. So, yeah, to answer your question, I think I would really love to do the tour and to not do it in my career would be I think would be hard so I am inspiring still to do it in my in the next few years hopefully okay a couple more quick fire ones here Willem HC asks who's your favorite long pool dude who doesn't get the recognition he deserves yeah right well I think um look I'm going to talk about look in look in recent times he's been getting really good recognition is Walt Van Aert you know what he's been doing on the front of the bunch is you can see it but that is actually one-off stuff. To be able to do what he's doing there is amazing, and he's getting the recognition for it. I think um, to go to the back of the peloton where stuff that you guys won't see, and maybe this is happening, but I'm pretty sure it would be happening, is uh, something happened to me a few years ago is you know the guys you need to get to to make it through a race. For instance, when the race is splitting at the bottom of a climb, there's riders going everywhere. It's going to form into groups. The front of the peloton is going to go on and then the group Edo is going to form behind and then there's going to be a group in the middle. Um, it's touch and go sometimes whether the group Edo will make it. But the group in the middle will get back and you've got to see what that group in the middle is and who those guys you've got to get around. You've got to quickly recognize who are the guys who are going to get you back. And for me, it was always quick step. It was always Mark, Michael Morkov um, and Viviani when they, those two were together. When I'd see the quick step guys forming on the climb, if they were you know two corners in front of, in front of me, I'd be like, uh oh, it's time to get my climbing gear on and get to the, those quick step boys. It's only one k to the top of this climb. If I don't get with those guys, I am not getting back to the peloton. Um, and those guys, they they stick together. This is a couple of years ago. I, I'm sure it's still the same now. Um, but those guys, they stick together, they look after their sprinter and they make almost like a team's time trial to get back to the peloton. And, uh, Michael Morkov, he's, he's pretty good at that. He's very calm. He climbs at a good speed. And when he gets on the flat, he's super strong to get you back to. So, 
Um, I've been caught out with those guys a few times, but um, I've been happy that I've been with them because you know you're in safe hands and you know that you're going to get inside the time limit. Well, Michael Morkoff is keeping an audio diary for us here at the Cycling Podcast during this tour, and we've been playing his updates um, every other episode or so, and, and in our Kilometer Zero series as well. And uh, yeah, the, the insight he's been giving has been, been really interesting. Another couple of quick ones. Harrison Aves asks, do you think the effort that goes into getting into a break is underrated by the fans? I do think so, yes, and I have been loving this with the Tour de France um, showing the full stage because I think some of the most exciting racing is the start of the race. You know, in the middle part of the race is the control part and the end is very exciting again. Um, If you don't know what happened in the beginning, the middle part can become boring for you. If you know what happened in the beginning, the middle part becomes exciting because you know that the guys in the front, what effort they've done, who made it, what the teams have had to do to control, and then so on, the whole race plays out. To get in that break is bloody difficult. Um, and I'm the, the race that probably gets missed, I think, personally, is Paris-Roubaix. Paris-Roubaix has 100, kilometer, 100 kilometers before the first cobblestone sector, and that is some of the hardest racing I do all year, that first 100 kilometers. The Tour de France is the same from what I've heard. To get in the break of the Tour de France, you might see the stages where they roll off, but the stages where they can actually win from the breakaway are hell, absolute hell to get in the breakaway. And it seems like you're just sort of watching a guy sort of rolling around, whatever. They're maximal efforts, and you can actually end one of your days trying to get in the breakaway. You don't get in it, suddenly you hit a category climb, then you're out the back, you're out the back on your own, and you're thinking... I don't know if I'm going to get through this stage or this whole tour because you just try to get in the break. You put yourself in the deep when you're already tired and you miss the breakaway. Then the peloton took off on a climb and next thing you know, you're in, you're out the back freaking, you know, fearing for your life out there. Okay, Mitch, I've got a few, a couple of slightly more serious questions here. First of all, Joint Health asks, uh, well, says, I was shocked to see the hordes of fans getting so close to the riders. Many of them were maskless. I guess he's referring to the stage that went over the Col de Perisord the other day. Um, it just occurred to me whether you had any issues with the crowds or any concerns when, when you returned to racing or, or having seen the tour, whether you know it's something that's playing on your mind a little bit more uh, given the coronavirus crisis. And obviously, you know when you're not on the bike, you're, you're trying to social distance and all of the rest of it. Is is it, is it something that is a concern or should be a concern? Uh, it sort of does debunk all the stuff we're trying to do outside of the race. You know, we're trying to stay social distance and wearing masks. You know, you see them cross the finish line, put a mask on within 10 seconds of finishing the race. Yet two minutes ago, there was someone yelling in their face, you know, half a meter away. But something that one of my directors said to me, which sort of, made sense he said look there's going to be many things out there that we can't control you know simply everyone coming from their hometown going to the supermarket the the week before and then coming to the race and then suddenly you're in this bubble and you're controlling it whatever i think what he says look we're going to just try and control as much as we can do everything we can to control our situation outside of that unfortunately we can't control that stuff but we can't lose energy on trying to worry about that um so that doesn't really say if it's good or bad but it's sort of 
it sort of made me think a little bit like, okay, everything I can do to control it, I'm going to do everything I can. Outside of that, unfortunately, you can't lose energy going, what about him? What about that? Um, So to say whether the crowd is right or wrong, um, you know, you can look back at Strata Bianchi, the same thing was there, you know, all everyone on the on the gravel climbs, and that was the first race of the year, so, you know, we were, we were in reconning um, Strata Bianchi in Siena, and we rode through the middle of Siena, and not one person had a mask on there in Italy, but that was the thing, that was the thing, in Italy, there wasn't obligatory masks, you couldn't get angry at those people, that's what they were doing, that's what the, the law was there, so, I don't know, it's a tricky one that, like I said, you're out there doing all this extra stuff, getting tested today, and all the guys are, and um, doing all these protocols, and then it could get all thrown out the window because of all the fans, you know, yelling and cheering you on and potentially spitting in your face, not by meaning to do it, but just by being excited. But I don't I don't really know how to play it. It's, it's almost like to, to avoid that, you just can't have the race. So it's like you're never going to avoid that. What do you think? Well, actually, what do you think, Lionel? Well, I think that so much has has been put in place to ensure the the rider safety and and the security of the event that um, it would be great if all of the fans and the great majority of them did step back a bit and uh, and and had the masks on. I thought, you know, again, I'm only going on kind of screen grabs or what I've seen when watching on the TV, but it did also seem to me that the the, the fans that got the closest were also the ones not wearing the masks, and so there's a kind of a, a bit of a divide there. You know, the respectful fans taking their responsibility seriously were not just standing back, but were also wearing masks. And I think that's a sort of human nature thing, isn't it? Um, I do think we've seen a, a kind of very simple rope, a bit like a sort of boundary rope in a in a cricket uh, ground, you know, like a, a village cricket ground, um, just a post with some with a rope just on the grass off the side of the road, keeping the fans um, back. And I, I think it, um, I think one of the things about the the the, the GC group in the big mountains, you, you don't want to see potential attacks being thwarted because the road is only one one bike rider wide i mean uh, we've seen it so many times where riders have had to check their um check their tactics or you know not being able to do necessarily what they want to do because they're just riding single file through this corridor of fans it's a fantastic spectacle but i do think you know just give the riders a bit of space to do what they've got to do and and certainly at the moment um while everything is so precarious it would be you know we've all got to do our own our own bits to um try and ensure that that everything goes off as safely and securely as it possibly can. Another one um, from Michelle6322. It might be Michaeli or Michelle. Sorry if I've um, pronounced the name incorrectly, but it'd be one of, one of those. Um, this is one that I can probably answer because after stage one, there was some talk of um, the crashes being caused on the descent uh coming from some soap that had been thrown out by the publicity caravan and uh, it was a bit of a thing on social media overnight on the opening day and this has kind of been debunked I think because the publicity caravan actually didn't go down that descent and um, we talked about this in the cycling podcast uh, in the couple of days after the opening stage it's just well you'll know it as well from the roads around Girona you know you get months of very dry weather and then all of the dust and the diesel from the cars and and in in the area in Nice even kind of olive oil from olives just falling on the road 
and and then you get a bit of light rain or some sort of medium rain and suddenly the roads are really like ice rinks and and that is uh, apparently um what happened but yeah we can we can rule out um soap being sprayed on the road we think um a couple of quick ones for you mitch this one you've got to answer this why do riders wear baseball hats instead of cycling caps on the podium i mean as the the man who is reviving luft and and the cycling cap um you know what do you think i mean should it be it should be mandatory shouldn't it cycling caps rather than baseball hats i think so yeah it's it's sort of a trend that's come in the last 10 years i reckon um i think maybe uh with new era from uh the the cap brand out of the united states and the bit of bit of fashion there but i get the feeling the caskets coming back um you know when you look back at the 70s and the 80s there was all caskets but um in recent time there's been baseball caps and you know i've been i've been known to wear one as well just team sponsors and things like that but um i am definitely a fan of get the casket back up there get the cycling cap back on the podium and lastly, Mitch, going to put you on the spot here. This is from Harry Dowdney. Uh, sorry, that last question was from Stephen Anderson, 22. But this one is on a similar theme, really. Harry Dowdney asks, who is the most stylish rider in the Tour Peloton? Oh, um, right. Let me think about it. I mean, what, what are your views on, say, uh, Adam Yates's, um glasses and helmet combo, for example? Is that for you? I'm not a not fan. No, I'm not. I'm not a fan. I like the. I like the um, Scott old glasses, the retro ones. But from what I know, Scott, for whatever reason, they put them out a few years ago as a bit of a limited edition, and they had a um, anniversary. And then all the boys started wearing them. They loved them, and they got. They started getting all these orders to to sell them, and they're like, "That's not the line we want to go." That's that's not what we want to sell our glasses from you know twenty years ago. So they stopped production of it. But all the boys who had one pair hung on to them, and they were desperate to have more. You know, because glasses get broken, the lenses get scratched. So after much demand, they've got them back. All those boys have got the old school Scott glasses back. So I was actually quite surprised to see Yatesy wearing those ones. Um, horrible glasses, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, look, I'm I wear the big pock glasses. Um, I wasn't a fan of them in the beginning, but I've been turned around. So maybe Yates is something like that. He didn't like them in the beginning, but once you wear them and you get used to them, um, he really likes them. I'm trying to think now who is the most stylish. Um, I thought Mark Hershey on his descent yesterday with the long socks and the aero suit. I mean, he looked pretty cool. I mean, we, we, we remarked on this. You know, He looked almost like a downhill skier when he was going down the descent there. He did, yeah. I do. I'm... I'm not a fan of those um, the bars on the the Cervellos there, but um, that's just an aesthetic thing. They probably are fast as all hell. But um, I actually now think about it, I, I really like the way Alaphilippe rides. It's a combination of style. They've got to look good on the bike too. I think Alaphilippe is he looks very good on the bike. He never really looks like he's suffering too much. Um, he has good style. He doesn't overdo it. Doesn't have super long socks. Doesn't have super long shorts. Doesn't have super short. Just sort of a good. Good all-round combination, and plus he's he's awesome rider. So, um, just quickly off the top of my head, I think Alaphilippe has probably got my my tick of approval at the moment. Well, obviously, it goes without saying, Mitch. If you were riding the Tour de France, that would be uh, that would be your mantle, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh 
god, maybe, maybe. You know, I probably the problem is I probably have the grimace on too much. You know, that throws out the style. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You've back. got to look like it's not really hurting as well. <laughs> Zach, I'd be at the back, swaying side to side, trying to keep up. No, it, it looks like a very, very brutal Tour de France, and to ride it. Um, I was very happy to see a good friend of mine, Sam Bewley, get a start in this year's Tour de France. He's first Tour de France, and I was then, secondly, very happy to see him ride the front. I thought Mitchelton Scott did a good job of defending the jersey, and especially Adam Yates. Um, you know, a couple times there he was dropped, and I just loved how calm he rode. Um, whether he was freaking out inside, I don't know. He never let anyone know that by looking at his face, and he just rode back on at his own pace, and... They defended the jersey really well there for a few days. I was really happy to see that. Um, and like I said at the start of the podcast, I'm really loving what my team's doing um, with Nielsen going in the breakaways and especially seeing Rigo just coming through with the goods. He's looking fantastic. And my tip for a late charge in the second and third week is Rigoberto Aran. I reckon we're going to see him right up there in the final week. Well, Sam Bewley, another man after your own heart because he does a, a podcast or a video podcast occasionally with uh, with George Bennett. He's also sending in some diary entries for the cycling podcast, as is uh, one of your sports directors, Tom Southam. So even though we're kind of outside the bubble this year because of coronavirus, we're, we're getting these, these updates from, um, from a group of riders and a sports director that are sort of taking us inside the race. So if you're, if you haven't listened to the cycling podcast before, do check us out we'll be following the race all the way to paris but mitch that's uh, we've got through a lot of questions there um life in the peloton next time we'll switch back round the other way and you'll be uh, you'll be asking somebody else the questions but uh, it's been fantastic to hear your thoughts on so many of your listeners questions there what uh, have you got anything in the pipeline for a couple of weeks time i do actually i sat down with my one of my favorite director sportives Juanma Garate, ex-professional rider from Spain. Um, he was a pro for 14 years. And I'm talking to him a little bit different than when I spoke with Tom Southern. Tom Southern was great because he gave us the in, day-in, day-out role of a director sportive. But something that I love about Juanma is he really works the psychological side of the rider. And I thought it'd be really interesting to find out how he goes about each rider, how he makes his team and how he makes those calls on the radio and what made him to become a DS and why he thinks like that around being a director. It's a really great podcast. It's one of those ones I wanted to record for a few years. I got a chance. I sat down with him. So that's coming up in a couple of weeks time, but it's been fun being on the other side of the mic today, Lionel. Thank you for hosting uh, Life in the Peloton. So I hope everyone enjoyed my attempt at answering your questions out there. And um, until next time, guys, thanks a lot. You have been listening to Life in the Peloton. The producer of this episode was Will Jones. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Thanks, mate.